We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing for Wednesday, September 12th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's show, we are going to talk to Marine Corps veteran Lex McMahon. Now, Lex has a fascinating life story that's led to his current position as the chief operating officer of Titan Fighting Championships, a great MMA organization. Before that, he served in the Marine Corps. While he was serving in the Marine Corps, his mom started dating a guy who it turned out had some pretty strong ties to the Marine Corps. And actually, Lex had learned about, while he was at Paris Island, his mom's new boyfriend, Colonel Ed McMahon. Yes, the Ed McMahon from The Tonight Show and everywhere else that you know Ed McMahon from. I mean, goodness sakes, the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes and so many other places that Ed is known from. That ended up being Lex's father. You see, Ed adopted Lex. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. We'll let Lex tell this cool story about Ed McMahon and how he came into his life and how he got from uh, serving in the Marine Corps into the business world and eventually into the world of fighting. We're also going to talk to the American Legion about something that affects uh, a number of people, and that is upgrading discharge status, how to go about it, whether it's likely to happen, whether you should try, whether you think it's likely to happen or not. We're going to be talking to Greg Nemard from the uh, American Legion. He's the guy who's basically in charge of that program, the discharge upgrade program. We're going to talk to him and Joe Plensler coming up later on today. And Greg is actually a veteran of both the Marine Corps and the Army served in the Marine Corps first and then moved on to the Army and now works for the American Legion at their national headquarters. Jake Hughes, just an Army uh, vet, not a Marine Corps vet as well. You yeah. never considered switching, going green to blue? No, no, I'm just a measly little Army vet. What do I know? You know, there was a program when I was, I guess, in the last few years of my service where the Army was trying to get sailors to come over to the Army, the uh, blue really? to green program. Yeah. And in my job field, is one of the things that they were looking for. They were looking for broadcasters and journalists to come over from the Navy to the Army. Uh, having worked for the Army, I said, hell no, that's not going <laughs> to happen for me, dude. I've worked for you guys. I don't, I don't, you know, the Army is fantastic in many ways. The Army also has some issues with bureaucracy and paperwork that the other services just don't have. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Probably, I'm guessing, in large part due to the fact that the Army is larger than every other branch of the service, significantly larger than the Air Force and Marine Corps, and larger than the Navy by a, a good margin, too. I mean, do you think that's what it is behind the Army's kind of uh, incessant paper pushing and like, well, you got to fill them out, you got to fill out Form 32 Bravo if you want to fill out Form 32 Alpha? Yes, I do think that is. But also, I think it's just, it's years of. No one wanting to fix the problem because, hey, if it works, don't touch it because everyone yeah. gets lazy. Some of the stuff, though, doesn't work. And the Army is actually making some changes. Did you hear about the fact that the Army is no longer doing the uh, weekend safety briefings? I heard about that, and I don't believe it. Well, it's it's so big Army is no longer requiring them. 
here's the thing and why they're probably still going to happen nearly everywhere. It's being left up to the local command. So who wants to be the colonel or brigadier or whoever's running a unit who has a bunch of guys get in trouble and then it turns out they weren't doing the weekend safety briefing that you guys know and love so much? Exactly, because if you don't tell someone to don't drink and drive and don't beat your wife and they do it, it's obviously your fault. Yeah, they would not have done it if you had just said on Friday, you know, it's pushed into us, uh, it's pounded into us, I should say, and in training, it's pounded into you. In boot camp, and basic training, you're there, and they're telling you, like, hey, don't do stupid things. Don't do things that could get you STDs. Don't do things that can get you arrested. Still. <laughs> Soldiers find new and fantastic ways to get in trouble. Yeah, there are, and I, I remember... You know, in 13 years, I never got in a significant amount of trouble for anything. Did you? Nope. See, in 13 years, the closest I came to going to Captain's Mast, which is NJP for the military, two times I went to DRB, Disciplinary Review Board, which is where chiefs, senior chiefs, and master chiefs sit there and judge you, and then it gets sent to XOI. Once it gets to XOI, which is the Executive Officer Inquiry, it's pretty much going to captain's mast. If the chiefs say it should go, the XO is rarely going to say, I disagree with them. The first time was when I was at Navy Recruiting District Jacksonville. I was a department head. I was an E6. I was the only non-chief or officer department head. It was a department of one, the public affairs office. It was me. The uh, senior chief in charge of supply did not like the fact that a Petty Officer First Class was a department head on equal footing with him when it came to the meetings and stuff. And he felt that I should be working for him in supply. <laughs> okay. Uh, no was the answer to that. And he ended up uh, lying to me and telling me, hey, the captain said he wants you to do this. And what this was was engraving plaques for the annual award ceremony, something that took like a full week or two of work. I was like, the captain said he wanted me to do this? Yep, CO told me that this is your job. I was like, okay. I went back into this back room where the engraver was and was doing hundreds of awards. It was a big recruiting district. One day, while I'm back there, the captain comes walking back. Hey, Dame, what are you doing back here? Oh, I'm uh, doing the engraving for the award ceremony, Skipper. Who told you to do that? Oh, Senior Chief did. He said that you told him that I was supposed to do it. He was like, go back to your office right now. The senior chief got lit up for that. Wouldn't you know it, a few weeks later, when I went to a meeting for an air show that was one of my jobs, was kind of organizing the Blue Angels appearances, He went. the senior chief went to my office looking for me, didn't find me, and assumed that I had skipped out of work early. Now, uh, to be fair to him, I did do that fairly often. <laughs> it wasn't the busiest job. Uh, I did have a lot of things that took me out of the office. And if I was out of the office and at three o'clock, it was a choice of like heading back to the office for get there at four to work another hour and then drive an hour home or just go straight home. Yeah, sometimes I went home. You know, I was a department head. It was my prerogative. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> CO didn't have any problems with it. Uh, so he basically accused me of that, of dereliction of duty. And it went to disciplinary review board. Uh, thankfully, the command master chief, who was one of the best command, no, not one of, he was the best command master chief I ever had, knew exactly what was going on within uh, a couple minutes of it starting and said, hey, uh, where were you? I was in a meeting at uh, Naval Air Station Jacksonville. Oh, can anyone verify that? Yep. Who? Uh, Commander so-and-so who was over at uh, the air station. He said, all right, you have his number? 
called him on the speakerphone. Hey, this is Command Master Chief from Recruiting District. Uh, last Tuesday was uh, MC1 Dame over there, J01, whatever I was at the time. Commander said yes, and they said, all right, well, you're excused. And then the meeting went on, and that senior chief got lit up by the Command Master Chief. That was the first time. Second time was, uh, I thought, even worse. We had a guy, I was working on a ship where a lot of classified documentation was happening, and one of the things that I oversaw as the leading petty officer of public affairs was the print shop. One of our guys printed something out that was classified on a non-classified computer and printer system. Big no-no. Doing a favor for a friend. I found out this was happening and found out that this data was on unsecured uh, locations. I went to try to find my chief. He wasn't there. So I immediately went to ADP, the computer people, to tell them they locked it up. Everything was fine. Nothing got out there. I mean, this was submarine information. The master chief who ran my department found out about this and blew a gasket. She said... You should have come to me before you went to it. Now it looks like I don't know what I'm doing because I didn't know about this and blah, blah. I was like, I needed to stop a secure information leak. I came to you as soon as it was done. Basically, the order that I went to her in, I thought it was more important to stop the information leak. Thankfully, the disciplinary review board <laughs> agreed with me as well. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, it was like she wanted to end my Navy career over that. Wow. Yeah. For, for stopping an information leak, which thankfully the officer in charge of ADP, the uh, lieutenant down there, came down uh, and and stood up for me and said, no, he should have come to me before anybody else. He asked the DRB a very simple question. And that question was, would the master chief have been able to secure that information that was on unsecured locations? No? Okay, I think we're done here. And then he got up and walked out. I was like, ooh. Of course, he was a former chief. So, Well, he was a former chief. Normally, you won't see too many lieutenants doing that in the Navy. Uh, you know, 03 is not going to be talking to chiefs, senior chiefs, and master chiefs like that. He was a prior service chief, so that's how that worked out. But uh, again, that master chief was not happy that I, quote, got away with it. It's just one of those things. Although, you know, Jake, you and I not serving in the military anymore. When you were serving, was there ever any sort of a natural disaster that uh, hit in any of your locations. I know you're at Fort Hood. They have sometimes small earthquakes, tornadoes, things like that, right? Well, I was serving, no. No. Well, there was a tornado once at Fort Riley, Kansas, but not while I was there. I was on leave at the time. You know, if you had jumped into that tornado, you would have been transported to Oz. I know, and I probably, like, oh. I probably would have been charged leave for it. I'm not in Fort Riley anymore. <laughs> yeah. Where's Hughes? AWOL, he's in Oz, hanging out with yeah. the... Uh, you, I don't know. Would you have hung out in Munchkinland? That'd be kind of a cool place. Yeah. You'd be the tallest guy there. I know. I'd feel like a playing. god amongst men. A <laughs> god amongst little people. Yeah, an interesting thing. Well, of course, there are several, several natural disasters headed towards and now one moving away from military installations. There was a cyclone that apparently was going to hit one of my former duty stations. Actually, the place where that issue with the uh, secured information happened, Guam. It only brush the island so uh, from what i've been reading not too much damage there it's an island in the middle of the ocean uh, you know sometimes if a storm hits it directly that can cause devastating damage nothing too major happened uh, so that's good there's also a uh, hurricane headed towards hawaii it looks like got that one to deal with and then the more um famous one the one that's in the news right now because it is Slated to hit the mid-Atlantic coast is, of course, Hurricane Florence, just taking aim at the Carolinas and Virginias. They're saying it's a Category 4 storm right now, which is a monstrous storm. I mean, you're talking 
Hurricane Katrina levels there. Could it build up to a Category 5, the strongest category of hurricane? I don't know. I've seen some people saying yes, but you wonder, you know, are they just saying that to get people uh, uh, to realize the severity of it? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. What I do know is this storm is going to hit the mid-Atlantic coast somewhere. We are right now in Washington, D.C. I live up closer to Baltimore. Looks like we're just going to get rain and wind, stuff like that. However, in Virginia and the Carolinas, it is not looking good. And actually, a member of our team is now headed down there if she's not there already. Just yesterday, Kayla Jackson, who serves in the uh, in the National Guard, was recalled to head down there and uh, prepare for you know doing whatever sort of operations. Oh, uh, she happened. was. Yeah, you didn't know about that. You were already gone for the day when this happened. She got the call yesterday afternoon. They asked where she was. Told her, "Hey, pack up uh, a week's worth of clothes at least and uh, get in." And there you go. Is that something that you uh, you ever would have uh, thought about, like going into the National Guard and dealing with that kind of stuff? No, I was always active duty. I didn't want to be a uh, when I was when we were in basic training. My drill sergeants had uh, disparaging terms for the National Guard. Yeah, but the National Guard does. I- I'll tell you this: in my opinion, within CONUS, within the United States, the National Guard is doing more than any other branch of. Oh, the I service. agree. I agree now, but back then I didn't know. But you never considered it. You ne- you never thought of like uh, when you were a youngster growing up down there. We talked about yesterday on September 11th when you were in high school when the when the planes hit the towers and that kind of you know was one of the things that contributed to you joining. Was the National Guard ever a consideration? Particularly because you can join up in the National Guard when you're younger than actually in the active duty military. I've known people join the National Guard when they were like 16, 17, still in high school. No, I always wanted to go active duty. Yeah. Well, the National Guard, of course, is uh, going to be playing a role in everything that happens down there, as is Team Rubicon. We're trying to work out uh, an interview. Rubicon is very busy right now as they prepare for Hurricane Florence. But this is this is not looking good, really not looking good. The Navy's already sent 30-plus ships out of Norfolk. Uh, they are evacuating not just the military, but the states in general. Virginia's eastern shore, uh, the outer banks of North Carolina, evacuations in place. And, man, you just hope that people are doing it. Because anytime there is an evacuation and the storm ends up being just as bad as they thought it would, that's when really bad stuff happens. That's when you get more deaths, more devastation. Like Superstorm Sandy up on uh, uh, the northeast, New Jersey, Long Island, people were put in danger, and then put rescue workers in danger because they just refused to leave when they were told to. I don't understand that mindset. What do you think is behind people not wanting to leave their homes? Stubbornness and that feeling of, oh, it will never happen to me. Yeah. They're playing the odds. Everything is never going to happen to you until right when it does. So looking at the military installations, of course, many of us in the military served in the state of Virginia Huge military presence in Virginia. I would say as big, probably, if not larger than any other location in the country, particularly Hampton Roads, where you've got Naval Station Norfolk, Little Creek, Dam Neck. You've got a whole bunch of stuff down there for the Navy. You've also got Army and Air Force bases. Langley Air Force Base is moving all the aircraft there, uh, F-22s and T-38s. They're moving them to Ohio, and all personnel and families are being evacuated. And that's a bit inland. Langley's not, like, right on the water. It's inland just a bit. Whereas, of course, uh, Naval Station Norfolk and Expeditionary Base Little Little Creek, those are right on the water. Um, All Naval personnel and their families who live in the lowest-lying areas of Norfolk ordered evacuated. That's interesting to me, this differential between the Air Force and the Navy. For the Navy, families who live in lowest-lying areas of Norfolk being evacuated, 
Langley, which again is inland a bit, the Air Force is moving all personnel and their families and evacuating them. Well, it's the Air Force. They had to make considerations for their like five-star hotels. <laughs> well, uh, you know, we joke it's a serious issue, but it is yeah, interesting. I know, I know. That, I know in, this, uh, in this area that is not as susceptible to floods and storm surges and things like that, the Air Force is moving their personnel out of there. You know, we joke around about how well the Air Force takes care of their personnel, but this seems to be another example of kind of how the Air Force rolls in a way that the other services look at and go, hey, how come they're not taking care of me like that? Yeah. I would suggest uh, if you are a sailor or a Marine or whomever in Norfolk, Virginia Beach, those whole areas, it, just get out if you can. Go inland. Go up into the mountains. Go wherever you need to go uh, if you need to. This storm, I believe, is scheduled to hit tomorrow was the latest that I was seeing out of it. Uh, we've also got in South Carolina, of course, a military presence. 1,600 South Carolina National Guard soldiers and airmen have been mobilized, and they've also got Blackhawks coming into the area. Uh, the Adjutant General for the Guard in South Carolina says they are ready to meet the request from their partnered agencies and emergency man managers. Coast Guard personnel in Charleston preparing their rapid deployment resources to assist during and after the storm. Of course, the Marine Corps has numerous locations in South Carolina, including Air Station Beaufort, where all non-essential DOD personnel are ordered to evacuate by the commander, Command Colonel Timothy Miller, uh, down there at MCAS Beaufort. Joint Base Charleston has limited evacuation orders. And Paris Island, I was talking about this with uh, Joe Plensler, Marine Corps veteran and uh, Legion spokesman. They're moving all the Marines at boot camp in Paris Island. They're moving them to Albany, Georgia. There's a Marine Corps supply depot there. They're basically just going to move them on buses, get them over to Albany, Georgia, which is a, a significant drive away. I would say at least four hours, three, four oh, yeah, hours, something, something like that. Like that. Uh, they are going over there, and they're going to continue their mission uh, at Albany. I was thinking about this. What do you think that bus ride is going to be like oh, for Marine Corps recruits? I can just imagine the DIs are just going to be standing there like, you think you're on some sort of field trip? This ain't no field trip. This bus drive is going to be hell for you, recruits. And Something then they like will that. make it hell for them. Well, every drill instructor has that weird voice. The frog voice. Yeah, and I've I've had many friends who are Marine Corps DIs who uh, you talk to them, and they're just normal normal guys, normal voice, like, oh, hey, Eric, what's going on? And then you see them talking to them. Talking to the recruits, it's like, I will murder you. I will murder you with push-ups. That's how I'm going to kill you. I love that voice. It's a fun yeah, thing. It is, it is rather effective. It's also just something that you look back on uh, affectionately when you're a Marine. I know from seeing uh, a bunch of people. I, I saw Eric Kowal from My MMA News posting a video of a bunch of DIs screaming at some recruit. He's like, you know, this is funny now as I watch it, but back then I would have been terrified and crying. Yeah, I, like yeah, I shared a video on my social media feed which said basically, had this been me, it was the same thing. I think it was a DI screaming at some some poor recruit, yeah. and like it, that would have brought me to tears when I first joined. But now it's just it's just hilarious. North Carolina, also of course, between South Carolina and Virginia, and they are. Also preparing with National Guard units partnering with North Carolina Helicopter and Aquatic Rescue Team and local emergency efforts to assist in possible search and rescue missions across the state. 200 Guard troops have been activated so far with the possibility of a total of 6,000 in North Carolina being activated. FEMA is also currently delivering trailers of MREs, COTS, and other emergency preparedness supplies to soldiers at Fort Bragg. 
they're about to go through a hurricane and now you're going to make them eat MREs. I, I mean, know, it's cruel and unusual. Goodness, that just talk about adding insult to injury. And of course, uh, other things going on. As we mentioned, Recruit Depot, Paris Island, Air Station, Beaufort uh, has now ordered mandatory evacuation for all personnel. Camp Lejeune, no mandatory evacuations, but personnel are placed on Liberty Administrative Leave during the height of the storm. So they're actually putting them on leave uh, during this. Here's another one that people aren't talking about. And despite the fact that it's not as big a storm, because of where it's heading, this one could cause uh, some significant damage because... It's heading to a place that's already devastated from a year ago, that being Puerto Rico. Tropical Storm Isaac is passing through the Lesser Antilles this week, slated to go near Puerto Rico on Friday. Puerto Rico, of course, still recovering from Hurricane Maria that killed nearly 3,000 people. The National Guard in Puerto Rico has already begun humanitarian efforts, passing out emergency kits. Uh, airmen from the Muniz Air National Guard base on the island are also on a warning order to assist. Uh, it's been downgraded to a tropical storm, but... Gent winds could be up to 73 miles per hour and produce up to four inches of rainfall on an island that is still just facing a, a big climb back to where it was. Um, it's This is not a good situation. The weather is just, uh, you know, it's a bunch of perfect storms, essentially. We've got a hurricane moving towards Hawaii. We've got a hurricane moving towards the East Coast, a tropical storm moving towards Puerto Rico. Had a cyclone just missed Guam. I, it's one of those things, man. I, I I also was lucky enough to have not had to deal with any uh, natural disasters while I was in, although I just missed a couple. When I was stationed in Sicily, Mount Etna had erupted like six months before I got there, five months before I got there, and that was a big deal. And then I got to Jacksonville, Florida, where I was the disaster preparedness coordinator for the command just a few months uh, after they had been hit by something like four hurricanes in one year. It would have been 2004 hurricane season in Florida. It was a devastating one where they just got hit by storm after storm after storm. Virginia and North Carolina, I mean, this thing looks like it's going to go head on into the coast. Not like the normal hurricane route where it seems to kind of come up the Gulf Stream and, and the inside of it is going to hit the coast. This thing is looking like a head-on collision. And again, if you know people in that area who are saying like, eh, we're just going to stay home, you know, we'll deal with it. We'll batten down the hatches, do what we got. No, tell them to get out and tell them to take their pets with them. Yes. That's another thing that we see during these. And that was one of the things I would bring up when I was the disaster preparedness coordinator. If you get a dog or a cat, don't leave them behind, man. They are even less capable of taking care of themselves, particularly if they're indoors. If an animal's outdoors, yeah, it, it may be able to get itself to a place where it can survive. Then again, it may not. If you bring it with you to where you're going, if you're going to be safe, the pet's going to be safe with you too, you know? And if a hotel won't take the pet or whatever, sleep in your car, but sleep in your car in a safe location, you know? Do things the right way, the smart way. Think things through. Don't just, ah, the dog will be fine. We'll leave some food for him and whatever. You don't know. Think about Hurricane Katrina, how long it was before people were able to get back into their houses there. Same thing in, in Puerto Rico. Anytime a major hurricane is hit, you sometimes have weeks until you're able to get back home, you're going to leave out weeks worth of food for your dog or your cat. That's that's not something that nope. you need to do or you should even be considering doing. Keep an eye on the storms. We'll be keeping an eye on that. And of course, uh, a whole bunch more. It's been a rainy summer already too. That's another issue that's come up with this hurricane. The ground is already soaked. Where's that water going to go, Jake? Uh, Up. Mm-hmm. You're going to have flooding uh, more so than than you would have on a normal summer, I would say, because we've had so much rain in the mid-Atlantic this summer. 
It's like a sponge. Sponges only suck in water up to up to a point when they are saturated, and then there it is. So we're going to have to deal with you know, some similar things to that coming up with this storm. You know, fingers crossed that it's not as bad as they're saying it's going to be. Maybe somehow it loses some steam or makes a U-turn. That's what I'd really like to see. How about the thing just turns around and is like, ah, just kidding. Going that out would actually probably be even worse because it would go out to sea, get stronger, and eventually come back. I'm just saying go out to sea and die. It, that's not how science works. Well, you know, sometimes. <laughs> sometimes that's how science works. We know how a lot of things work, although we're not geniuses. We're just two guys who sit here talking about veterans' issues Monday through Friday at ConnectingVets.com. And, of course, on social media, we are at ConnectingVets. No dot com, just at Connecting Vets. And if you go on Facebook at 7.15 every morning and then we upload it later, you can watch the first segment of the show. You may be watching it right now on Facebook. And then, of course, you'll get to hear about what's coming up on the full show, which is going to air at ConnectingVets.com slash listen at 8.15 a.m. with replays at 11.15 a.m. and 4.15 p.m. Today's show is a fantastic one. Lex McMahon, Marine Corps veteran, Chief Operating Officer of Titan Fighting Championships, fascinating guy, Comes from a fascinating family. His adopted dad, Colonel Ed McMahon. Yes, that Ed McMahon. He was a colonel in the United States Marine Corps. Lex is going to tell us about his relationship with Ed, how that relationship actually led him into the world of MMA, which he currently works in, and so much more. Just a fascinating life. I mean, really, Ed McMahon and MC Hammer both played a role in him getting into mixed martial arts. Oh, wow, really? That's a sentence I never thought I would say. You're listening to The Morning Briefing. We're also going to have American Legion National Headquarters talking about discharge upgrades later on. We will be back with Lex McMahon right after this. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to The Morning Briefing from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day is our slogan, and it's what we're doing. And why are we doing it? Well, because each and every member of our team knows what it's like to have worn the uniform. Just as importantly, we know what it's like to have taken that uniform off for the very last time. And so every day, our team of veterans is working to get the best information, the best benefits, the things that you need to live your best veteran life Put them on the website each and every day, ConnectingVets.com, and follow us on social media at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. It's Wednesday. That means it's American Legion Day here on The Morning Briefing. And our next guest, and guests, we have two in studio, is Greg Nemhard, Assistant Director of Discharge Claims Upgrade for the American Legion, and also our old friend Joe Plensler. Gentlemen, good morning. How are you today? Doing great. Good. Thank you for being here. Well, we are glad that both of you are here. We've talked to Joe before. We know all about him. Let's find out a little bit about Greg Nemhard. As I understand it, you're one of those odd creatures who served in two different branches of the military. So, Greg, give us like the Cliff's Notes version of your time in service. Where are you from? When did you join? And what did you do? Uh, yeah, that's right. I, I was in the Marine Corps first, and then I joined the Army Reserves. Um, I, I joined the Marine Corps a year and a half after migrating to the U.S. from Jamaica. And I spent most of my time in Camp Pendleton. I was a box kicker. That's supply for, you know, those who forget. <laughs> um, and I did two tours, got out after my second tour to Iraq. And then I joined the Army Reserves a little less than two years later. I uh, did 
uh, HR office work then for the Army Reserves. Very cool. And and when you got out, did you immediately come to work for the American Legion, or how did you become a member of the Legion team eventually? Um, it, it was a long way getting here. Uh, when I first got out, I moved uh, out of Florida to Boston, got a job working for the Army, and eventually moved down here to Virginia. And by way of job change, I found out about the American Legion, joined up, and then later on, I applied for a job there, and uh, here I am. Overall, before we talk about the great work that you're doing, what's the experience been like for you both as a Legionnaire, as a member, and then later on working for the organization? Well, as a Legionnaire, it was more of an honor being part of the organization that represents such a wide community. Um, But it wasn't until I started working for the American Legion that I really learned to appreciate the American Legion because of all the things that the American Legion does for the veteran community. I mean, it's it's mind-blowing just learning about some of these things and and how the American Legion represent veterans. And me being a natural advocate, I felt like I I just, I'm home. I fit Mm. right in. You know, I love advocating on behalf of others, and the American Legion makes that possible every day. You know, there's a lot going on at the American Legion, both on the national and the local level. The local posts are doing great things in the community, also giving a great sense of uh, camaraderie for veterans out there. Right, Joe? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of things that you can do, whether it's bingo, whether you want to do a fundraiser, the Legion Riders we were just talking about off air, raise a lot of money and also have a good time doing it. Yeah, they're having having some fun out there on the roads as well. Maybe not today as it's raining in our nation's capital, but... Uh, Greg Nemhard is working on the things more at the national level, although it affects people at all levels. You are the Assistant Director of Discharge Claims Upgrade. So, first off, what does that exactly mean? Are you the guy who tells someone, all right, we will help you up try, uh, d- try to upgrade your discharge claim, or does it mean something else? That's exactly what it means. We are the guys that help. Uh, you know, the onus is always on the veteran to to get a lot of things together, but we provide a lot of the, the resources and the information for them to submit uh, a request to the board of the different services, whether it's the Marine Corps, Navy, Army, Air Force, or even Coast Guard, to upgrade uh, their discharge. Anything that is less than honorable, they can request after, you know, we recommend after a certain number of years, you know, that they can request to have that upgraded. Who are the people that should be looking to get it upgraded? I mean, if you got a dishonorable discharge for murder or something like that. I'm guessing you're probably not going to get that upgraded anytime soon. Who are the people that are eligible for this and are most likely to see some sort of upgrade in their discharge status? Well, anybody that did not go through a general court-martial are eligible to apply for the upgrade. Doesn't mean they're going to get it, Um, but if you have anything less than an honorable and you did not go through a general court-martial and it's been, you know, at least five or six years, uh, those people are eligible. Now, there are very different circumstances for different folks, and some people may have gotten kicked out based on, you know, minor administrative uh, issues. You know, mm-hmm. somebody may have popped on a, on a urinalysis, you know, after one time event. Um, we've, we have now a community of veterans who were diagnosed with PTSD after they got out of the service. And it turns out that that PTSD diagnosis or the, the illness contributed to some behavior. You know, so they've had two, three, four, five years of good service, and all of a sudden their behavior shifts. And now they're finding out, I have PTSD that may have contributed. Um, those, those folks especially should look at, at getting a discharge upgrade. 
Um, but there's a lot of veterans out there with other than honorable discharge, and a lot of it is for administrative uh, or, or misbehavior. Those folks should definitely look at getting an upgrade. Does there need to be some sort of mitigating factor like PTSD? I mean, if someone is removed, let's say, an other than honorable because, you know, what is it, failure to adapt to military life, basically. They're constantly showing up late. Is that something that they can ever get changed without some sort of mitigating factor that shows there was maybe like a medical or mental reason for them to have had the issue? It, yes, there is. And, and like I said, a lot of it is circumstantial. So the those folks who they don't have any kind of psychological issues they had a pattern of misbehavior they couldn't adapt to military life they were late for you know for their their morning assemblies and everything uh, absolutely one of the things that the board looks at is okay what did this veteran do before entering service how did they perform during their time in service and what have they done since leaving service and that part is key and that's why i said after some time after you've been discharged you know you need at least five six years to develop a, a history after service so the board takes a look at everything and somebody may have done poorly during their time in service and maybe even for that reason got kicked out but they got out of service and they've had a stellar career education you know they look at that and they can see, okay, maybe they were having difficulty because of these factors. They take all that into consideration when making their decision. Who is it that makes that decision particularly? I mean, the American Legion helps people trying to get an upgrade. The American Legion doesn't have the ability to, you know, <laughs> there you go, you got it, right? Absolutely. We give them the paperwork, the resources, and we guide them in the process. We even accompany them to the hearings. There's a panel of of. Uh, board members for each service, uh, Navy and Marine Corps combined, but then you have Army, Air Force, and that panel of, of board members makes a decision together as to their voting members as to whether the person gets an upgrade or not. And they either do it based on a document review, or if the veteran goes to a hearing, they do it based on a combination of document review and the veteran's own testimony. And it does sound like your behavior after the fact, when you leave the military, some people might be surprised to say like, well, if you got an OTH discharge for something you did in the military, uh, it should be basically that that they're looking at alone. But it's actually more than that, right? It sounds like what you do after you get out uh, counts. Absolutely. It doesn't guarantee anything, but it does count because they look at it. Um, you know, what you do after service can give some clues as to what was going on while you were in service. It could be that, you know, that's just an age thing. You were immature. You made some silly mistakes. Um, it could be a character flaw. But they look at the big picture. They look at what you've done after service, and they say, well, you know, even if what you did in service was simply you being, you know, misbehaving or, or not adhering to rules and regulations, they look, okay, have you learned your lesson? Mm. You know, have you adjusted to life? Have you been a contributing member of society? Or have you continued the same pattern of behavior? One question that I think a lot of people would have for you, Greg, and we're speaking with Greg Nemhard, Assistant Director of Discharge Claims Upgrade at the American Legion, is what difference does it make for someone if they go from other than honorable to uh, you know general or whatever the status is? What are the How does that benefit the veteran who received an OTH? Well, the common that the most important is you have a different picture of your service. You know, if you have children, you want to be able to tell your children, I have a honorable discharge. 
Um, a lot of veterans, they care about their legacy. They want to, you know, they want to be the right example for their children and their family members. On the other side of it, a lot of veterans uh, want to be able to take advantage of certain benefits offered by either state, you know, local, state, or federal governments, uh, whether it's VA benefits, housing benefits, and the type of discharge on your DD-214 could affect whether you qualify for those benefits or not. And especially for homeless veterans or veterans who are just down on their luck, they're the ones that usually need it the most. They're the ones that I get called from, the calls from the most. If someone's out there and they're hearing this and they're saying, you know, I think I might want to try to get my discharge upgraded, what are the first steps they need to take? Are there documents they need to gather or is it as simple as just contacting their local uh, American Legion service officer and getting in touch with your office? My recommendation is contact your local American Legion first and foremost. That way you're not uh, collecting unnecessary documents, but that they can guide you in the process and actually help you develop that packet. Of course, you also have worked in claims, which another thing where people need to have all their ducks in a row when uh, making a claim, when they're looking for a discharge upgrade. How important is it for someone to have all the documents that they need, or are the documents that are required for something like a discharge upgrade something that you'll be able to get copies of if it's something that you don't have anymore, like your DD-214 or what have you? Uh, you know, if you have the documents, it, it is always best practice to present those in the packet. However, if you don't have something but the services have it, then you can collect that after the fact via document requests. Especially, you can submit an SF-180, which is basically requesting copies of the records that the, the services or the archives have for you. But you can, it's always best practice if you have it, to present it with the packet. If not, it is something that you can get after the fact. What are some of the biggest mistakes you see from people who are looking to upgrade their discharge that may make it less likely for them to be successful in that goal? One of the biggest mistakes that I see are people who they don't seek that counsel from a service organization and they submit a claim without a thorough uh, statement or they make a statement, but the statement is, I want a discharge upgrade because I want VA benefits. Mm. That is not in the purview of the boards. They will tell you that is not in their purview. Um, and so it's always best to seek that counsel. That way you're actually filing a thorough do um, packet and not simply submitting a piece of document without anything for them to consider. Does the era of the veteran make a difference? Has someone got another than honorable discharge or something like that back in Vietnam? Does it make them any less or more likely to be able to upgrade their discharge status than someone who served in Iraq or Afghanistan or, or, or served more recently? No, it does not. Um, it, the, the boards look at the accumulation of your service and your life. Of course, if you got out, if you served in the Iraq war and you got out a year ago and you haven't had much time to really you know, do much in society, it's, it's, it's less for them to work with, whereas somebody who served in Vietnam, they've had a lifetime of experience for the board to consider. But beyond that, it doesn't make a difference. When it comes down to it, uh, if you go to try to upgrade your discharge, is that it if they say no, or is it something that you can do repeatedly? Is it something that you can try again a few years down the road? There is an appeal process that you can take advantage of. Uh, we often uh, advise those seeking a discharge upgrade to ask for a document review the first time around. That way you reserve the right for a hearing. 
So if they deny it the first time, you can appeal and that time request a hearing before the board. However, if the board uh, denies it, you know, some people may say, well, you can't appeal again, but you can. You know, you can continue to, to file, request a discharge upgrade. You may have new documents and new information for them to consider a third time that you didn't have that second time. Kind of reminds me of uh, the Shawshank Redemption, Morgan Freeman's character, going up for parole over and over again, and then one day finally went through when he was least expecting it. So just because someone's maybe tried to do this in the past, it doesn't sound like they should let that put them off from trying again, does it? No, it does not. And, you know, we we often get discouraged by what we, we consider the bureaucracy. We see it both on the claim mm-hmm. side and on the discharge upgrade side. Uh, they say no, and we say, well... There it is. They say no. That, that's the wrong answer. You want to keep trying. Of course, we're speaking with Greg Nemhard. He is the Assistant Director of Discharge Claims Upgrade at the American Legion. You also worked in VA claims before. Let's talk to uh, that a little bit here. For people who uh, have uh, a, an honorable discharge but think maybe I'm not receiving as much as I should from the VA or maybe there's something not quite right with my status, again, what are the first steps that someone should take in those cases? Can they just show up to the Legion and say, this is what I think the problem is. I need you to help me fix it. Or should they have a little bit more than that to begin with? Well, they can show up and say that, but the Legion is going to say, okay, sit down so we can figure out exactly what it is you think you have. Uh, you know, my recommendation always is to seek out that that uh, American Legion or service officer because I didn't appreciate the value of a service officer when I first got out the mili- the Marine Corps. Mm. And I got my 10% you know, for an injury and I was happy with it. Um, but there was a lot more uh, that I could have, uh, you know, qualified for based on my service that I didn't know. I just had no knowledge, even though I thought I did, until I started doing this work. And I realized, you know, the veteran community are really at a disadvantage when it comes to the knowledge of the VA system. So first and foremost, I always recommend seek out your service officer, seek out an American Legion representative, Talk to them, bring whatever military documents, medical records, or even uh, records of care you received after you got out in the military. That way they can review everything and give you the proper advice. One of the great things about the veteran service organizations like the American Legion that a lot of people don't know is that you do not even need to be a member of the American Legion to use those services. That's right. Officers. I mean, that is huge. That's a wonderful service that's provided to every eligible veteran out there, whether they're a Legion member or not. It's a, a great service. What are some of the other things that the service officers can do for vets out there through the Legion? You know, one of our main things is uh, advice. We provide advice to veterans. So whether you're seeking uh, VA benefits whether you're seeking uh, burial benefits or trying to determine a pre-need burial care for you and your family, uh, if you're seeking assistance with uh, housing or those things that can point you in the right direction, their service officers are a wealth of information uh, for things that are both local and and national. And uh, you know, if you have an issue and you think I don't know where to turn, your service officer can point you in the right direction. And those service officers are available at your local American Legion posts. If that post doesn't have one, you can find one at another post. And you can, of course, contact the American Legion directly. Moving back to the discharge upgrades, 
what what sort of percentage of people actually getting upgrade do you think we're seeing if you were to estimate that or if you actually have any numbers is there like a a number that you have for how many people have been successfully able to upgrade their discharge status the the percentages vary i think um based on the service but it there's a large larger percentage of people not getting an upgrade than there is who are getting an upgrade and i don't want that to discourage your listeners because you know, like I said, sometimes they say no the first year, you go back and, you know, they consider new information and you get it the second time. So that's always a moving target. So I don't want to put a number on it because, you know, what may be 80% this year could be 85 next year. It is really a moving target. And a lot of it depends on how prepared the veteran is when they go for that discharge upgrade. When we look at the military, is the number of people being removed with an other than honorable status actually growing or shrinking, or has it stayed fairly steady throughout the years? Uh, so it looks uh, it looks fairly steady. Um, the majority of the calls I get are, free, are folks with honor the other than honorable, but the majority of the calls I'm getting are from veterans who have served uh, prior to 1990. There are uh, a number of veterans that have contacted me who have served since the first Gulf War who are seeking an upgrade. But right now, the majority of the ones that I'm speaking to are those older veterans who just did not even know there was a discharge upgrade process that they can even uh, seek. How do you think we can get that word out to those people, whether it's those Vietnam veterans, those <laughs> veterans from the 80s, the 70s? How do you think we let them know about the uh, the possibilities that are available to them to maybe change the status of their discharge? By doing exactly what you're doing right now and reaching out to the service organizations and doing interviews, uh, they can go to legion.org. We've just uh, worked on a, a flyer that we're hoping to get published here in the near future that will be available to veterans seeking information on discharge upgrade and other benefits and uh, you know, just talking to your local American Legion representatives. We've got... In every state, we've got service officers that are available to help veterans. And like you said, it, you don't have to be a member of the Legion. It doesn't cost anything. And that can be found at legion.org forward slash service officer. And they'll dial you into the people in your state uh, who are close to you that can help you with the issues. And, of course, it, it doesn't cost anything, but it costs somebody something. The Legion is paying for it. And that's part of what membership does. Sure. It allows for these services to continue. And, you know, we've seen a, a decreasing number of veterans out there as the World War II generation leaves us, the Korean War generation leaves us. It seems to me like it may be more important now than ever for people to take part in the veteran service organization sphere, whether they want to join uh, the American Legion or, or a different organization. This is something that's going to help a lot of people, isn't it, Joe? Oh, sure. Absolutely. And you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, back in the World War II, Korean, Vietnam generations, a lot of people served a little bit. And with the advent of the all-volunteer force, there's just fewer veterans around because fewer people are serving a lot more, you know, combat tours. And so you're right. I mean, we have 22.5 million veterans in the United States today. And, you know, if nothing changes by 2043, we're going to have less than uh, 15 million veterans in the United States as the overall population goes to 405 million. So, um, you know, now more than ever, it's important for veterans to band together and, and join a VSO. And the VSOs, of course, beyond the veteran service officers and those wonderful community events that are held and fundraisers, the, v, the, the, the VSOs, like the American Legion, are also advocating on behalf of veterans each and every day. I mean, Absolutely. you guys are working at the national headquarters in D.C. There isn't a day that goes by. Even when Congress is out of session, the American Legion is never out of session. No, you guys are still definitely working. Definitely wearing down the marble on Capitol Hill. <laughs> you know. 
What are some of the, the biggest things that the Legion's focused on right now as Congress, of course, is back in session after the yeah, August recess? You know, I, I think, I mean, we had a pretty good year last year uh, with about five major pieces of legislation passed. So right now we're really focused on making sure that those are implemented properly and following up on that and make sure they're funded. Uh, a good example would be the VA Mission Act. Um, you know, right now that's uh, the, the funding for that's still in question and passed May of next year. Uh, we're also, you know, watching to see how the Department of Veterans Affairs does rulemaking to streamline those nine community care programs into one. Uh, we're looking at, um, you know, why are there 40,000 uh, provider vacancies over at the Veterans Health Administration? You know, those are some hard right. questions we're asking to Secretary Wilkie right now. Uh, because that's all capacity to treat vets. And, you know, it's just like um, community care programs is, is fine especially for rural veterans uh, who live far away from VA facilities. But in places that do have VA facilities, we're wondering why those providers aren't hired. And if, you know, there's 40,000 vacancies, why are only about 4,500 listed on USA Jobs? You'd think there'd be 40,000 vacancies listed on USA Jobs. We've talked about that. It is interesting. And the fact that in the last uh, four years, I believe it is, that that number has stayed fairly steady between 30 and 40,000 people. Mm -hmm. They've actually added 40,000 additional positions at the VA and haven't filled those ones. And there's a lot of questions about redundancy and and what the real deal is. And that's kind of what we need to find out. And it's hard for, you know, Joe Navy, Joe Army, Joe Marine Corps, Joe Air Force, Joe Coast Guard to just walk up to the Capitol and get in there and get those meetings, that's what the Legion and the other organizations in Washington, D.C. are able to do for them. Yeah. Sure. And of course, uh, we had the appeals modernization program that, that went out and that is aimed at, you know, getting rid of this, this backlog of uh, claims and appeals that we have at the board. And I know the board had taken steps. They've hired new, uh, new judges and, and new personnel to try to deal with it. Uh, and they rolled out the rapid appeals modernization program but that requires participation in order for that to be as effective as they they hope it will be. But we're looking forward to seeing how that also works out. And participation is what it's all about. I mean, if as veterans we don't stand up and say what we need and demand what we need to actually get done, it's great that they pass legislation, but then if they can't figure out how to pay for any of those programs, guess what? It ain't going to happen. Thankfully, there are organizations like the American Legion who are working tirelessly each and every day to make sure that veteran voices are heard on Capitol Hill and around the country. Joe, if people are interested in finding out more about the American Legion, what's the best way that they go about doing that? I would go to www.legion.org, and uh, I prefer if they add a forward slash and put join after that. Oh, yes, that's a, that's a, that's a little subset of uh, the website, of course, and You do not need to be a member to take advantage of the service officers as we've been talking about today. But if you do become a member, that is mean that means that you are helping other veterans gain access to those service officers and keep those programs operating at the high level that they do. Well, we've been speaking with Greg Nemhard and Joe Klemsler from the American Legion. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thanks Thanks for having us. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At ConnectingVets. Welcome back to the morning briefing from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. 
connecting vets every day. Our next guest is a Marine Corps veteran and the Chief Operating Officer of Titan Fighting Championships, the MMA organization. He also has a familial tie to the Marine Corps. You see, Lex McMahon's adopted father is Ed McMahon, who served in the Marine Corps, in fact, reached the rank of Colonel. I asked Lex about his relationship with his famous dad. The last name that you have is a fairly famous one because your adopted dad, Marine Corps veteran, a colonel, as you said, World War II and Korea era veteran, I believe, is the very well-known Mr. Ed McMahon. A lot of people don't know that Ed was a Marine. They think of him as, you know, Johnny's buddy sitting on the couch having a great old time. Uh, What do you remember about him telling you about his time in the Marine Corps? Well, first of all, when I, I mean, I met Ed right when I was coming out of uh, boot camp and my mom, those Marines out there who, who remember boot camp, I got a phone call right before graduation. You don't get a phone call. And the senior drill instructor you know, called me up to the, to the, uh, the DI hooch and he said, listen, you got a phone call. And he leaned in and he goes, who are you? And I was like, uh, sir, what, 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 what are you talking about, sir? And he said, well, take your phone call. So, I picked up the phone, you know, and uh, my mom was on the other one. She said, honey, um, I'm going to be bringing um, my boyfriend to your graduation. I was like, mom, you're you're kidding, right? Like, you just called me? Like, (laughs) you realize how much I'm going to pay for this call? She was, well, it's pretty important that I tell you. It's it's ethnic man. And, you know, I just spent 13 weeks in in, in Lincoln Boot Camp learning the history of the Corps and all the significant, uh, you know, figures that we have historically in. So the first thing I said was, wow, you know, he was a colonel in the Marines. And that's how I addressed him. That's how I looked at him was colonel. And I addressed him as colonel for probably the first five to six years of our relationship. Um, We had the Marine Corps as a common bond. And, you know, we quickly uh, became very close. I was the only uh, one of his children who went to the Marine Corps. So I think he, you know, he really took a, a liking to me and took me under his wing. And, um, you know, I had never really had a father. My real father was either passed away or just not part of my life from the point I was three months old. Uh, I don't know, don't care because ultimately he had became my dad. And, uh, when he got a dad like that, who was truly one of the great men of his generation, um, you feel blessed to have that guy in your life. And so, but that was uh, how he came to be in our life. And, you know, probably I think I was 26 years old. I'd actually already served in the Marine Corps. And um, EAS and was in uh, just finishing up, I think, my, I want to say, I exactly when it was. But it was it, at 26 years of age, I come home from my birthday from school. And I have this think frame box. And he hands it to me. And I open it up. And as I'm reading the document that's inside, it's legal pleading paper, and it becomes pretty apparent that this is a, an adoption decree. And I think to myself, wow, this is, this is really odd because I'm 26 years old and I have a whole life as another person. And then within you know, that split second, I also thought, wow, what an amazing gesture by this incredible man to help fill the void in my life. I was like, how could I not say yes? So I said yes. And, you know, we really did have that relationship. He really was my dad. And, you know, um, I actually was able to, to give the eulogy on behalf of the family 
um, at his funeral. And it really was a, a pretty poignant and profound moment for me. And there's a great story behind that, which I'm, I'm happy to tell uh, as we move through the interview, if you'd like, because it really is personifies what military and in particular the Marine Corps experience is. Absolutely. And we're speaking with Lex McMahon. Lex is a Marine Corps veteran. He's a chief operating officer of Titan Fighting Championships, a wonderful MMA organization, and the son of the legendary Ed McMahon, Marine Corps veteran himself, a colonel. A question about that for you, Lex. You know, when we think of Ed, we think of just such a personable, happy, jolly guy. That's that persona that he had, you know, in his profession. Marine Corps colonels are not often perceived in that way. Was there still a lot of Marine left in him, or was that public persona uh, more more exactly how he was? You know, the public persona is 100% how he was. He um, was certainly a Marine through and through, um, but I think he was a man who was capable of conveying a message and um, commanding respect without dropping the hammer. He, he just, he made you want to perform. He was one of those leaders, one of those men who people looked up to automatically. And he, you know, he just, he got you to fall in line pretty quickly. And uh, we had a pretty regimented house and it wasn't because he was, you know, a dictator. He was far from that. Uh, you just wanted to please him because he was, he was just such an incredible person. And he taught me so much about being, um, a man about being a Marine, about being a leader, um, about being a human being, um, truly was blessed to have it in my life. Of course, if people Google Lex McMahon, they'll find, uh, look at the, a lot of things about Titan FC and all the great work that you're doing. If they go to the image page, they will see pictures of you in your dress blues delivering that eulogy that you were talking about. And you said that there's a, a really great story behind that, and I'd love to hear it. Sure. So, <clears throat> two parts of it, and, and please indulge me, I'll take just a minute. Um, the first part will really explain, uh, they actually both do, will really explain the brotherhood that we have in, in, in the military. And obviously, I'm, I'm biased to the Marine Corps, but it, I, it truly goes across the board for, for all of uh, the military community. Um, Ed got very ill uh, towards the end of his life, you know, at, um, I think he was about 86 at the time. And he went into the hospital, and the paparazzi, you know, were, were clamoring to get a picture of, of him, uh, you know, on his deathbed. And I called all my buddies, and I said, listen, you know, this is what's going on. And these are all, you know, brother Marines, and um, they all took time off from work. And for the entire time that he was in the hospital, which is almost six months, once he went in, he never came out, we stood a 24-hour guard rotating, and these men just took their personal time, their family time, went on leave to help fulfill that so that the paparazzi couldn't get a picture of them, and they never did because we had, guard, we had Marine, uh, Marines on sentry. Um, that says a lot about the community. Now, <clears throat> we, you know, soon after Ed went into the hospital, I think he knew that he wasn't getting out, and so he called me to his bedside, and he said, listen, I've given you everything, and I've never asked for everything. And I said, that's correct, sir. He goes, it's time to pay your bill. I said, roger that, sir. I can do that. He uh, said, this is what I want. I want to be buried as a Marine by the Marines, which includes you in uniform. I also want on my headstone it to read, here lies Colonel Ed McMahon, a good entertainer, but a great Marine. 
And I said, Roger that, sir. I can take care of it. I stepped outside, and, uh, you know, after that, I kind of gained my composure. And I made a phone call to a gentleman who uh, Ed and I had befriended, which was Lieutenant General, um, I was just telling the story yesterday, I'm blanking on the name all of a sudden. Um, but Lieutenant General, he'll come to me. He's in charge of all the Marine Corps bases on the West Coast. Um, and I said, hey, sir, you know, this is Lex. I, this is the request I have. And he said, listen, I'm going to give you a phone number. I want you to call that phone number in five minutes. Just give me a moment to make a phone call. I said, yes, sir. The phone number was for, for General Amos at the time, and who was the assistant commandant. And I called up General Amos. And I said, sir, you know, here's the story. He said, listen up. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to get down to Camp Pendleton. I want you to get fitted for your dress blues because I'm sure you don't fit into them anymore. <laughs> and I kind of chuckled. I said, no, sir, I do not. And uh, he said, I'll take care of everything else. Just let me know when it's the time. So a few months later, I let him know it was the time. And at, um, at service, six Marines and dress blues, including the Lieutenant General, um, came. He gave the, the eulogy on behalf of the Marine Corps, and I gave the eulogy uh, on behalf of, of the family. And, and the story's great, as is right there, but it, it gets better, which is, Fast forward, because of my work with A Hero, uh, the, the Novet nonprofit that I'm involved in on the board for, I got the opportunity to meet Kyle Carpenter, the young Marine who threw himself on a grenade in Afghanistan to save his buddy. He's awarded the Medal of Honor. Kyle invited me to his Medal of Honor ceremony, and which, by the way, is the most patriotic thing you can ever participate in. If, if, if you ever see it, those who, who never will, trust me, it's it's truly it's a week-long um just incredible festival celebration of the actions and, and heroism of, of the individual. Um, but that Kyle ceremony, we're about to walk into uh, the part of the White House where um, the medal will be awarded by the president. And I see General Amos, who's now the commandant of the Marine Corps. I walk up, and you know, he's chatting with somebody. I walk up and, and say, excuse me, sir, I apologize for interrupting. My name is Lex McMahon, and a huge smile came over his face. And he goes, I know who you are. He gave me a hug. And I said, sir, I just want to thank you for helping me fulfill my father's dying wish. He was a Marine through and through, and he just wanted to be buried as a Marine by the Marines. And he said, that's what we do. That's what this whole thing is about. It's about brotherhood. It's about camaraderie. Um, so that's actually one of my favorite stories to tell. Is it personifies everything that Edward, everything that I believe in, and everything that, that the, the military community and the Marine Corps in particular believes in. Wow, that is an incredible story coming from Lex McMahon about his dad, Ed McMahon. Yes, that Ed McMahon, Johnny Carson's buddy on the couch, and of course, just a wonderful human being, it sounds like, and of course, an amazing Marine, and man, do I like the story of that tombstone. Uh, Lex, let's move back to the end of your Marine Corps career. You said law school you went to. What do you remember about the time when you finally, you know, ended your time? Cut. You never really cut ties with the Marine Corps, obviously, as that story just illustrated. But when you finally fully left uh, the Marine Corps and putting the uniform on behind until delivering that eulogy, what do you remember most about that time? I remember it being a struggle. Um, trying to find a sense of self and, and how I fit into uh, the community. Um, it, transitioning out of the military where you have such a strong bond with your peers and where, especially, you know, as we've seen over the past, uh, 17 years uh, of, you know, almost constant combat deployments, 
when you you know have to go downrange and lay it on the line with, with your brothers and sisters, um, truly just to survive, there's this bond that is forged that is uh, really just unbreakable and very difficult to replicate that in the civilian sector. And uh, I've struggled for many, many years to find that, that sense of community. Um, and it really has taken me going back to being involved in, in you know, organizations like A Hero uh, that are all about you know, fostering that, that relationship, that bond of the military community that has kind of helped me find, um, I guess, peace with my, my position in life now as no longer being, quote-unquote, a, a Marine. Of course, I'm always a Marine, but, um, you know, no longer active, no longer participating uh, in fighting our nation's battles. Lex, of course, you've moved on to do some pretty impressive things. As you said, your work with uh, with veterans organizations, as well as being the chief operating officer of Titan Fighting Championship. Uh, how did you get into the MMA world? What brought you into that? I mean, there does seem to be some direct lines for Marines. We can think of Brian Stan fighting in uh, WEC and UFC, or Eric Kowal, who actually introduced us, who runs my MMA news. What first got you into the world of MMA? I don't know. <laughs> The real answer is I 100% know. Um, my dad was, um, I negotiated a contract for my dad to appear in a Super Bowl commercial alongside MC Hammer um, for a company called Cash for Gold. Um, they filmed the commercial at my dad's house, and it actually was the last bit of work he did. He went to the hospital soon, soon thereafter. Um, but during the, the day of filming, I really got to know the guy who, who owned the company, Jeff Aronson. And it became pretty apparent that both Jeff and myself and, and Hammer were huge fight fans, huge MMA fans. And we, you know, kind of kept up a rapport and a relationship. And, you know, months later, uh, after the commercial had aired, which was, you know, it was a huge success. And, um, you know, after uh, Ed got, you know, Ed went on his final journey, uh, Jeff reached out to me and said, listen, I, I'd like to start sponsoring MMA fighters with my company, will you do it? Now, what Marine has ever said no? Right? <laughs> we don't say no. We just say yes. So I, of course, knew nobody in the MMA space, but I figured I'll figure it out. You know, I've got a checkbook now that I can uh, write sponsorship checks for. You know, I can figure this thing out. So I actually, going back to the conversation we had before we came on air, Randy Couture. I went to Randy. Uh, he was the biggest name in the sport at the time. So I found a way through some relationships to get to Randy. And I said, listen, I'm going to give you a check. It's going to be a large check. I just need you to put this logo, you know, across your shorts. And that started, you know, a, a year-long run where we sponsored some of the, you know, really great athletes in, in, in the sport who were really coming up at the time. You know, Rashad Evans, Nate Marquardt. Uh, Randy, and you know, on and on and on. And the great thing about MMA, because it's a small sector, is quickly, uh, especially if you're the guy writing the check, you get to know everybody. And uh, one of the things I noticed pretty quickly was that there wasn't a lot of business acumen at the time for um, folks representing athletes. Um, there's no players association that, that you know mandates you have a master's degree and you know meet certain metrics in order to become an agent. Uh, it's just kind of the wild west in a free for all. So I spoke to um, Jeff, and he said, "Well, funny, you know, you mentioned that. That's kind of what I've wanted to do is do some research and some due diligence on on the market to see what we could do." And so 
we launched uh, a management company and we got MC Hammer involved. And so here I am all of a sudden, I'm partners with MC Hammer and uh, a sports agency. And it was great. You know, we had a tre- tremendous run. We were managing, you know, 40 of the top fighters in the business. But I was gone all the time, three weeks out of the month. And uh, sometimes, you know, six weeks straight, fly to Macau, 22 hours later, get on a plane and fly to Hamburg County. And, you know, just on and on. I was burning and I missed the first you know, five years of my daughter's life. And, you know, I came back to my partner and I said, man, I, I gotta, I gotta throttle back. It's just killing me. And he said, well, I want to buy a lead. Okay. So he buys an FC and, and he says, I want you to run it. Okay. So now I'm running a league. Again, no experience, but I figured it out. And, you know, my background with being in venture capital and having a lot of green and uh, an MBA and also being an entrepreneur. And of course, most importantly, being a lead. I was able to figure it out and, and um, I was able to leverage the relationships I had built over, you know, the time uh, with the management company. And I still manage a few athletes, uh, even now, uh, Stefan Struve, Shorty Torres, Brendan Schaub, you know, a few folks like that. But, um, yeah, that's how I got into the space. And, you know, I've just leveraged this amazing platform. And, you know, with USC Fight Pass, which is the Titan FC broadcast, we're on, uh, we're in 150 countries. So I use that as a platform to obviously, you know, tell a Titan story, but more importantly, I use it as, as a, uh, a platform for me to tell the story about how Titan is working with organizations like A Hero and Sal and the veteran community to really make a difference in veterans' lives. I mean, I always have veterans cage side. Um, you know, we find ways to help fundraise. You know, whatever we can do to support and bring awareness to those organizations we do. I've been very fortunate. My partner, Jeff, has given me a tremendous amount of latitude in that regard. And of course, Titan FC is available on UFC Fight Pass, which if you're an MMA fan, that's something that you need to have. That's that's something that you you absolutely should be checking out. You get to not only see, you know, the, the library of UFC uh, previous fights, you get to check out organizations like Titan FC and others that are included on the Fight Pass. Now, Lex, as you've mentioned, of course, you're involved with A Hero. And tell us a little bit about that organization and what the goal of A Hero is and how it's helping veterans. Yeah, absolutely, and thank you very much for the question. Um, you know, A Hero is uh, very much near and dear to my heart. Um, after uh, 9-11, I actually tried to, to re-enlist in the Marine Corps, and um, I was in that, going through medical. All the paperwork was already done. They, they had me all set to go back, and they discovered that I had a degenerative eye disease and that I was disqualified medically from re-entering service. Um, absolutely devastating to me. So I, I kind of regrouped and gathered myself and said, okay, if I can't, if I can't go serve downrange, I want to serve those that are serving. And that became, began my quest to find ways to, to support the warfighter. And, you know, a few years down the road, <clears throat> I've done a few things, but a few years down the road, um, I had the opportunity to meet who is now a, a Marine Corps major, um, a gentleman by the name of Lee Stuckey. Uh, Lee had been a sergeant in Fallujah, um, came back, um, finished his college at Auburn, then as a commissioned officer, uh, did several tours in Afghanistan. So I did a, little, a lot of really bad things and, and, you know, got blown up, suffered TBI, lost Marines. And I think one day he just did a breaking point and he was sitting at his desk at home, or his dining room table rather, and he had his phone sitting upright so you could see kind of the glass. He had a bottle of Jack Daniels. 
and he had his 45 in his mouth and he was squeezing the trigger when the phone rang and it said mama he broke down crying put the gun down picked up the phone answered it spoke to his mom and he said you know this is what i was about to do and she said honey you need to come home Uh, he's from rural alabama so he took some leave and he went home and he spent a lot of time out in the woods hiking and hunting and also he connected with a group of veterans in that area um, everybody from World War II all the way through through Gulf War and also oh, um, OIF and, and OEF vets. And he found that it was very cathartic to spend time out in nature with like-minded people because they could understand them and he felt comfortable opening up and talking to them. So that was really kind of how a hero was born. He said, if, if this helps me, it's going to help other people. And he came to me pretty quickly and said, I, I need help. And he also went to another friend of ours, um, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Glassman, who was a, a 53 driver uh, who's now retired. And, you know, the three of us really have been kind of the backbone to a hero, but we've had a lot of great people involved along the way. And, you know, we're now well over uh, several thousand uh, veterans that we've serviced. We just in the past two weeks have had 104 vets that we put through programming. We did a warrior hookup in Pensacola um, where we had 80 vets go out. Community came behind it. It was an amazing multi-day event. Uh, we took, I took actually, uh, a group of 10 vets to participate in an outward bound program hiking through the Sierra Nevada mountains on the uh, John Merrill wilderness, which is incredible. I got back about a week ago. And then flying home today, we have a group of 14 vets that participated in something called Warrior Week Denmark um, that a hero has been a part of for the past few years. And, you know, we had Marine Corps Colonel, um, our Army Sergeant Major, you know, a whole group of folks that went and, and represented a hero uh, for us and had a great experience with the Danes and, and, and their, their veteran community. Um, you know, it really is, the goal is for us to put people that are like-minded in a fun environment and allow them to engage in peer-to-peer counseling because we felt found that someone who is a civilian and hasn't served, it certainly can be empathetic, but they truly don't understand. And if they don't understand, you know, the, the service member of the event is not going to open up to them and, and really say, like, I could go up to somebody um, and say, hey, man, how'd you get hit? Tell me about it. And they will. And if, you know, a civilian or someone who, who just hasn't served goes up and asks that same question, chances are that that's really not going to talk to them about it. And therefore, they're not going to get that opportunity of healing and, and, and catharsis. So, um, I mean, that's really, you know, what a hero is and what it's all about. I'm blessed to be a part of it. I, I've seen save so many lives. You know, the statistics are truly staggering, um, you know, in terms of veteran suicide. And, and I think we play a role in helping uh, to stop that. And I think eight years I've been a part of a hero. We've had two of our alumni take their life when compared against the, the national average. I think that's pretty good. And I think it says that that type of programming is impactful because it creates a community. You know, as we're wrapping up each program, I tell everybody involved, I say, listen, there's two things I need from you. One, you need to know you're loved. Two, you need to pay it forward. You need to be a part of this community. You need to fall back onto this network that you're now a part of. If you, you know, hit that darkness, and you need to help others who may be kind of in the same spot or going through the same sort of experiences. You need to help them out and give you know show them the light. So 
um, you know, that's, that's what Air Hero is about. And, and, you know, you can check it out at Air Hero USA. It's a truly incredible organization, organization all volunteer-based. You know, we, we run, I think it's like 94 cents of every dollar raised goes directly to supporting the warfighter. Um, you know, we run, again, all volunteer-based. And I think that's, that's really kind of one of our competitive advantages and one of the metrics I look at when I get involved in a, a, a organization is, is it a volunteer-based organization? It is really incredible. And another of these wonderful organizations out there working to help veterans. Again, that website is aherousa.com. Lex McMahon has been our guest. He is on the board there. He's also the chief operating officer of Titan FC, Titan Titan Fighting Championships, I should say, and a veteran of the United States Marine Corps, as was his dad, the legendary Colonel Ed McMahon. Lex, we want to thank you so much for your time today. And more importantly, thank you for the work that you're continuing to do to help our brothers and sisters in uniform out there. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for the time, Eric. I really appreciate it. It was great to chat with you, my friend. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We are CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Connecting Vets. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. See T-Mobile.com. 